Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. This week, I'm joined by Jim Carter. Jim is a lawyer, certified environmental planner, and public administrator. He currently serves on the Holiday City Planning Commission and has served as the chair of the board of the Henry's Fork Foundation. He has also been a longtime mentor in the program that I helped to found. We discuss practicing and leading with vulnerability. And although our conversation was pre-recorded, I chose to air it today in light of Election Day. Today may be a vulnerable day for many of us, and emotions around the country are running high. In fact, this year has been particularly vulnerable as the COVID-19 pandemic has blurred the professional and the personal. Many of us have converted our homes into offices, and we've also begun answering our colleagues and our bosses, how are you, questions more truthfully. Jim and I discuss how leading with vulnerability and authenticity can create positive workspaces. So let's begin. All right, so I like to start with a question, and I gave you a little bit of heads up that this yeah. was the question I was going to ask, which is my big happy question. If you remove any reference to work, school, sports, volunteerism, church activity, pretty much all that stuff I just talked about in your bio, right, right. if you don't count that, what is your greatest accomplishment or what are you the most proud of about yourself as a human being? Something that has become apparent to me is that I have developed an ability to not react, to not overreact in difficult situations and to think um, about what's going on in the person's mind who's confronting me. Like, what's going on? How's their day? What have they been doing? Why are they so angry at me? And this just happened a few days ago, which prompted this thought. Hmm. Um, it's really more, I'm really happy that I can do that, and it turns out to be really useful. So in my work environment and volunteer things and all that sort of thing, um, when people are angry, my reaction is not to turn my back or run away, but it's to come forward and say, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about your anger. What's, what are your concerns? 
So that's, I, I'm really proud of that. And it's, um, I have so friends who will watch and say, don't even engage or, but I can't help it. And it's, I'm happy about it. So it's like your well-developed sense of empathy. Yes. I mean, I think when I encounter people who are upset, I really think about what is it that they're upset about? And most of the time it boils down, I mean, there's irrational craziness, but most of the time it boils down to something legitimate. I mean, people have a real reason to be concerned or upset. All right, so today um, I have to tell you that uh, I was so happy that you said that you would be willing to take on the subject matter of courage and vulnerability. So you're already... Yikes. I think just by doing that, <laughs> you're showing courage and vulnerability to have that as our conversation, like the overarching umbrella that we're using as we talk today. And um, so, first, thank you for talking about those things. Well, I think it scares people. Enjoyable, to yes. Talk about that. It can be scary. And so, um, I think just to start, I'm interested in hearing from you. Like, what do those words mean to you? Courage and vulnerability. How, what What do yeah. they mean to you? And thinking. Um, Thinking about it, once I realized this are going to be our the umbrella for our conversation, courage to me and maybe to most people is the bystander who runs into a burning building and saves a baby, and afterwards said, "Oh, there was anyone who would have done it." That sort of thing. That's sort of one-off. People just rise to the occasion and, and do what they need to do. But I think that um, over the long haul, it's like this thing I talked about with uh, not reacting when I'm attacked. Um, it's sort of a, am I okay? Am I comfortable enough in my own skin, I guess I'd say, um, to let someone come up to me and this one person attack me for even being there? And well, In what way? It, at, well, at work <clears throat> this is at a public meeting out of town <clears throat> and um, a person came up to me and said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Salt Lake City. Well, what are you doing here? Why do you have anything? Why are you telling us how to live our lives? So, and I was getting from over her shoulder, someone's going, do you, don't, you don't want to get into this. <laughs> She's really angry and you just don't want to get into it. But um, I was able to engage her. I don't think she was happy when, when we got finished, but... Um, but she was heard. Yeah, she was heard. Yeah, I, I think that's it. So I'm willing to hear people. Hmm. And I think that others, and observing me would say, well, that's courageous. It doesn't feel courageous when I'm doing it. It just feels like I'm curious. You know, what is it that got you so wound up? I love that you are talking about authentic curiosity. <laughs> yeah. Ah, there is that. I, both my parents just loved people, big social lives. And my mother used to embarrass us by approaching strangers, especially crying children, and comforting them. Hmm. to the amazement of their parents. And I just, I thought, isn't that neat? She found something out. She'd come back to the car. We'd be on a vacation. She'd come back to the car and say, well, that, that family was from someplace, and they've never been in heat like this before, and so everyone was hot, so I bought everyone popsicles, and I just thought, what a great way to be hmm. with people. Um, so that, and I find it more often than not enjoyable. Yeah. I found out something new. <clears throat> I learned something. Um, and in the work that I have been doing, it's useful. I mean, it's a good thing because we're trying to plan and help people talk about their futures and what they want to do. 
How do you see that related to vulnerability? I think being willing to be seen. This sounds very grandiose and self-congratulatory, but it's that is the other thing that went along with it. So these that sort of courage that I talked about and the vulnerability really are companions. <clears throat> if you're and, and this is not something I just was born doing or woke up one day and I could all, all of a sudden do it, but um, be able to be yelled at. Mm. Um, be able to be seen as uh, fallible and wrong and in the wrong place and what are you trying to do? Um, also has worked for me. I mean, in all kinds of situations. It's, I think that what you said earlier that people just want to be heard. 90% is they want to be heard. Some want to give speeches, but most just want to be heard. And if I'm appearing to hear them, and I do hear them, it just dials down all the angst. And and again, others would watch this and go, you know, why do you subject yourself to this? And why? And I say, because this is an interesting person. I'm curious about this person. It's so, so interesting because I think you're getting to the heart of courage and vulnerability. I, I mean, cool. like most of us don't are so unwilling to be the person in front of other people looking like we don't have the answers or, or being willing to have someone yell at us and, and still maintain uh, curiosity instead of just being defensive or wanting to win. There's something just popped into my head and that's um, someone who was a great mentor to me said there are there's always two ways, two kinds of people, two ways to do things, that sort of thing. But there are really two ways um, to approach a situation that is not known to you. And one is the expert's mind, which is to walk into the room going, I have all the answers, I'm in charge. It reminds me of somebody in public eye these days. I can do everything, I can fix everything. And then there's the student's mind, which is, I'm here, I don't know what I need to know. And I'm here to find out what it is I need to know. Um, I think that, given my experience, if you will teach me what I need to know, I can offer some assistance to you. Mm. And that's, I found that to be absolutely true. If you walk into a room, this the woman, she was a woman that confronted me um, assumed that I was presenting myself as an expert with all, the, with all the answers, and that was part of her anger. She said, you're here to tell us what to do. And I said, no, I'm here to listen to what you want to do and then offer some ideas and see if any of those are appealing to you. Hmm. And it, she kind of took a deep breath and went, hmm, that's odd. I've never yeah. dealt with consultants who act like that. So that, that says something about us, too, like just our society in general, maybe, that that's a... I think. I that think it's that, surprising that that's the case. I, I really, the people I admire are, are 100% who they are all the time. And well, I, need to be careful. Sometimes you need to put on a little bit of a mask to sort of power through something. Difficult public hearings. Yeah. If you're chairing a difficult public hearing, you can't just say, oh, I feel sorry for everyone and let's have a group hug. You need to get through. <laughs> There's different roles to That's play. That's right. So there are roles to play. But I admire that about people and I, so I adopted that and it's working. Awesome. So I want to talk about, um, well, you know that I'm a big giant fan of Brene Brown. This is not a surprise to you. Oh, no. <laughs> and she, so she has a definition of vulnerability, which is 
she defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So does that definition resonate with you? It does. Um, the thing, and maybe this is just part of getting older and having had experiences, the risk part diminishes for me. It has diminished a lot. It's, so risk is what could go wrong here? What's the downside? Yeah. If this went terribly wrong, would anyone die? No. Would people get their feelings hurt? Possibly. So the risk part to me has not, is not still a big component of being vulnerable. Uncertainty, excuse me, uncertainty definitely is. But I find that interesting. I wonder where this is going. <sighs> so it's the curiosity. Do you put that to again. work in your, like in making decisions for yourself? Not just like when you're approaching it from a place of... Like a work situation. Or, or even a work situation that you might not have comfort. I mean, you've, you've had this long career. So right now, you might be in a position where it's okay whichever way it goes at work. But have you had the uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure be present for you in one of your, you know, in your prior jobs where you've had to really think about those things as you're, or yeah. not on purpose thinking about them, but maybe feel them in your gut as you're making decisions? But yes, this is helpful. The, the first job I had in which other people were really relying on me was being city attorney in Park City. And I had never been a city attorney, and I had only been out of law school five or six years. And the city was really going through a lot of turmoil, and it was very active politically. So their meetings were very animated, and there was a lot going on. Um, and that scared me initially. Actually, the, um, I had talked to people who'd been in similar situations saying I just couldn't do it. It was just too upsetting and visceral and made me sick. And initially, it, ki it was kind of that, but it was so exciting to, to be around people who were that passionate about things and that excited hmm. and committed that that just sort of dissipated, I think. And it's, I just grew to be more comfortable in what others would say, well, that's really risky. You could get fired. You get a new mayor, you could get fired. All these things could happen. Yeah, you took a job that mayors can... It was can... a political appointee. Yeah. And if they decided I didn't know what I was doing, which there was a very high risk, being as young and inexperienced as I was, and I just thought, well, I don't know. It's like... The, I, can, I guess I can live with the downside. I could live with as bad as it could get because I just can't imagine it getting so bad I couldn't live with it. So hmm. that's work. Um, relationships. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> hard to have had a relationship that did not work out in the long term. And it was, looking back, I can see that it was a lack of authenticity on my part that was a big contributor. I was not able to ask for what I wanted, not able to say no, not hmm. able to assert myself. And that gave a false impression to my then partner um, that everything was there fine. was fine. And so I think when I reached a breaking point, everyone, everyone was surprised. And so I had a, there's a good object lesson in the downside, if you will, yeah. of not being authentic. 
So those taken together make it easier for me to um, not worry about how I'm being perceived and just say, here's how I see this or here's what I like. Because over time, that's led to the best. Yes, it has. Ultimate results. Continuously, even difficult situations resolve themselves sooner or later. So I want to talk a little bit because I've, I've thought about this in advance of um, the idea. When we say the word vulnerability, it has such strange uh, reactions from people, mm -hmm. right? And I, so I have noticed this, and maybe I'm wrong, so you tell me if okay. you have. Um, when I've talked about the idea of vulnerability, and particularly the idea of vulnerability in leaders, um, or maybe when I'm talking about courage and vulnerability, I get, I almost see a generational divide. Like I, when I talk to um, people my age or older, and I've told them, I'm really interested in talking about leaders and vulnerability. And they go, what? Leaders aren't vulnerable. Why would you do that? Like they, it's like they can't wrap their heads around it. They can if I'm saying courage and, and leadership. Mm -hmm. But vulnerability and leadership, they can't get their heads around. Not, and, and I'm generalizing, but it surprised me. When I talk to younger people, people younger than me, about vulnerability, it's like they are drawn to it. They want to talk about it. They and in more ways than the older people, they seem to be. Um, they just acknowledge that it's there. And, and, and I don't know if I'm. Have you seen yes. that? Yes, I think. And <clears throat> since I'm older than you are, um, I might. I was modeling myself. What does a man look like? Act like? Talk like? On my father, who's a terrific guy, loving father, husband, and all those things. Um, and he was definitely a leader, but he led in a, I can't think of a better word than, he was sort of a soft leader. <clears throat> he would say, I think this is a good idea, what do you guys think? <clears throat> and then he would lead his work group to where they needed to go. On occasion, he would have to take control and be the, you know, the field commander and say, this is what's gotta happen. But his, that was not his mode of operation. <clears throat> and he moved up through his company really well. I mean, he had a terrific career with that very soft approach rather than trying to be a command and control sort of leader. And I think his vulnerability and his willingness to be just a guy mm. who happened to be a really smart guy and also happened to be in charge of a big expensive pipeline, that he, he didn't see himself as those things. He mm. saw himself as a guy who was, we're all working on this thing together. And he didn't hang out much with the vice presidents and the lucky mugs. He liked to go fishing with the um, people who ran the compressor stations. <laughs> and so he just saw himself as a regular person. And I think people just reacted to that. So that, but I think that's a generational thing. And I think that that level of vulnerability was very rare in my father's generation. Um, and I think <clears throat> having modeled myself, how do you, you know, how do you do this man thing based on my father, who was born in 1920, carried over in my early adulthood to, well, he succeeded with this soft thing, but I can see, and I was in the military, so I have experience with command and control. Um, it just never worked for me. And I think that I couldn't pull it off. How's that? Anytime I try to lie, I turn bright red. 
And so I would, if I stood up there and acted like I knew everything and you guys should do it or there would be consequences, I can't pull it off. It just won't work. <laughs> They're going, no, that's not true. So as, as I progressed in my career, I found that I lead, and I had a position in which the expectation was that I'd be much more directive and ultimately that didn't work out. The, the, the person in charge of the person in charge, which was me, felt that a much more director, directorial style was more appropriate for the situation. Um, Do you think they were right? <clears throat> I, it's hard to know. Um, I think if there's misbehavior, then you need to take a, you need to say this yeah. is misbehavior and it's got to stop. Yeah. And so doing performance evaluations it can be challenging for me because delivering the bad news, but I realize that it's important. Um, I'm currently working in a situation where <clears throat> it's a terrific team and there is none of that. So it's easy to be just a team member, but I, I do think it depends on the situation. I found, I'm going on and on, but early in my career I thought, well, I, I want to progress and have progressively more responsible jobs and more money and all those sorts of things. And then I realized I'd be better off if I just picked things that I would be good at and where the leadership um, or the position of responsibility was a more soft, a softer approach would work. Um, and for me, that's been in teams mm. and even pretty large teams. It's stepping away from whatever you've dreamed up about what other people expect you to do or should do, mm -hmm. or, oh, you should have taken that promotion, even if you didn't like it and tough, you know, show them you could do it. Um, so I think that <clears throat> courage to be able to make your own choices knowing that there are external pressures that are pushing you in one direction or another, I guess that is a courage, that is courageous. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours. Let's jump back into our conversation with Jim Carter. You brought this up a little bit, but I think it's important that when we're talking about courage, um, and particularly actually when we're talking about vulnerability, that we also talk about like the dark sides of those things that... Um, Sometimes it's not the right time to be courage, courageous and sometimes it's not, it's inappropriate to be vulnerable. And I was reading this article the other day about people, um, quote, performing vulnerability. And I thought that was interesting. Like it was a whole article about behaving as if you're vulnerable or doing things like oversharing inappropriately or, you, you know, like yeah. whatever that, that you think is going to well, what it's inauthentic and it's not going to actually connect you. It's going to make you disconnected. It's, I think it's a species, it's the other end of the same spectrum that being defensive is on and being remote. It's you're, what you're really doing. I think <clears throat> what's happened there is um, that person has chosen a different technique 
to protect their actual vulnerability hmm. by disclosing or oversharing. And I think I think know, that's are, really are, are important. We, are we fishing for pity? I mean, are we really fishing when somebody tells me something difficult? <clears throat> I think everyone can tell whether you're hearing this because that person would like you to hear them and understand and empathize, or they're just telling you this is sort of to prove something. Like, right. oh, look how vulnerable I am, or look how generous I am, or look, it's not coming from a place of sincerity. It's performance. I think that can based. happen, yeah. yeah. Now, I don't think that, I mean, in my own life, I don't, I haven't experienced that a lot, but... But I it's dangerous it to real relationships. It is. I think it puts the receiver kind of back on their heels going, well, now do I have to cook up or think of something that's on a par with what I'm hearing in order to stay connected. I think that's and totally it goes fair. goes to a strange place, I think. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I have been in situations in which I have shared something very personal and I've had, in response, people either connect with me or, go, or say, wait a minute, I don't have anything that big to talk about. And I think, oh, oh my goodness, that's not what this was. This just popped into my head. This circles back to how we started in Courage. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think people may say, well, I don't have anything to be vulnerable about. I don't have any dramatic, traumatic right. thing. And so that courage is running into a you know, burning building, but it is also behaving authentically. And I think that vulnerability is kind of the same. I agree. It's I can be really emotive and sort of have, I need to share this with you to an extreme. Right. Or be vulner vulnerable when it's appropriate. I, maybe I have more time on my hands, but I'm thinking a lot about our society right now. And um, it's just a question I wanted to ask you is, do you okay. think that there's room for courage and vulnerability in our national discourse? I do. Tell I me, absolutely do. Tell me about that. I mean, I think that all of this anger, I think part of the problem is it's being stoked. But I think all this anger flows from fear mm -hmm. that um, somehow something bad is happening to me or is going to happen. And, I, and I'm trying to be fairly neutral and just looking at this from the big picture. And so everyone's making all their choices based on fear. We talked about that. Terrible place to make all your choices. Grizzly bear, good one. Upside down under a boat. Good one. Good one. That's a good one. I mean, there are useful, reasonable places for people to have fear. But it seems to me all the public discourse and all of the choices and all the actions, almost all of them, are, being, are coming from a place of fear. And I think that's awful. Well, you have experience dealing with that in terms of like, in your planning work, I mean, you know, bringing right. people together who might <clears throat> be from different sides or in your legal work. You know, that it seems like those things often feel from the outside as, as zero sum or somebody wins yeah. and somebody loses and somebody, you know, that, that, and how... That's precisely it. If they win, I lose. I mean, that's the, that's the animating. And it's <clears throat> what I've learned through work and in, in those really difficult public hearings and so forth is making it clear to even people who are very angry and not happy about where things are going to say, you, you need to win 
maybe not with outcome, but you need to win in having your voice heard and considered in the decision-making that, that is going to happen in the future. And that, I think fair-minded people can walk away and say, well, I'm still not happy. In fact, I'm a little bit pissed, but I'm not so furious that I can't see anything but red. And I'm going to make all my choices based on being furious and fearful. Um, collegiality is gone. Mutual respect seems to be gone. Um, just acknowledging, well, that's, an, you, that's a good point. I understand why you or hold that position or feel that way. I don't feel that way. <clears throat> there was room for agreeable disagreement. And it seems to me that that is all gone because it's now, you know, either you hate first or die. It's, you know, it's that bad. Is there from your perspective, a way out of it for, I mean, like if you're talking to our listeners today, okay. what would you tell them about how to handle it? I would it? take a deep breath, count to 10, <laughs> and, and seek out, look at the commonalities. I mean, so do your kids play soccer? You know, do, are you, do you volunteer at your church or volunteer at the community center? To look for the human things that we all do that are common. Yes, I commute to work. Um, and just, it, it's... Or yes, it's I'm so, worried about my medical bills or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's so cliche to say, well, we just need to seek common ground. Well, yeah, but what does that look like? It's, I don't think we're ready to have common ground on choices about moving forward. I think we need to reestablish common ground on we are all in this together. We're all kind of doing the same stuff. We're dealing with healthcare and all the stuff. And if we remember that, then we... I think we see ourselves as needing to work together on those things. Even if we can't agree about immigration, right. let's set that aside for a minute. That's just too, too hard. And let's agree on the PTA. It's, it isn't that hard work to just set that aside um, and not go to a meeting and yell, but go to a meeting and listen and think about it I and think then say, here's really what I want to say. I think, I think it's, it's really hard. hard because we do that all the time. We let the, our anger get the best of us in our discourse right. regardless like because it feels so visceral um, can i ask a question <laughs> just an fyi before we continue the new voice you just heard is brie she's our producer and she's about to ask an important question um this is kind of a hardball but i wanted yeah. to ask it anyway how do you think that your privilege and your identity plays a role in that because um in some cases certain people have the privilege to be able to put things aside while other people can't. can't. Immigration for them could be a top, just a topical thing that doesn't affect you very much while mm -hmm. on another person that is their identity, they are an immigrant right. or whatever. That is a great question. And I, I'll just say from my perspective, I think immigration is the most important thing to wrestle with. The whole racial privilege or lack of privilege in immigration and how we treat each other as a diverse society, I think is at the core and the most important thing that we have to come to grips with. Um, I think I know the answer, but I think a number of people have been whipped into a frenzy of fear and they are just incapable, at least at this point, of rational thought. I'll just say that. Um, and so this may be one of those situations like where the bear fears the, the right thing to do. This may be one of those situations where fighting back hard is the right thing to do. Hmm. And, you know, peace and kumbaya comes later. But in terms of healing, I mean, I think there are battles now that need to be won. 
because I think we are headed in such a bad direction as a country. Um, so I think this is one of those times that you, you say, we got to fight and we got to win. Um, that's not going to make everyone happy because it's a battle, but I think that's, I think that this, it's the right thing to do now. What is the role then of people like you or people like me who may not be <clears throat> struggling ourselves with that identity? However, um, you know, how do, how, what is our responsibility in the face of almost a struggle for the soul of our society? You know, like, what's our you role? Know, it's, I'm hoping and, and believing that this is going to play itself out in, on the political stage rather than in the streets, which even then would lead to the political stage. I just want to ask you this that's kind of out of the blue, but okay. um, as you know, I'm really personally very passionate about the roles of mentors in our lives. Yes. And I am interested in hearing from you about if you've had any particular mentor that was important to you and what did you learn from them? My curiosity about people leads me to learn something from people just from a five minute encounter. I mean, I, one of the delightful people I sat down on this project was a farmer whose last name is Ricks, whose family opened Ricks College mm -hmm. because they were so committed to education. Um, delightful guy. I learned a ton from him. We just almost couldn't stop talking. We are totally coming from different spheres in a variety of ways. And I think, I feel as though he mentored me in a little way because I let it happen. I wasn't saying, well, I, you know, I need you to mentor me. But in terms of a longer-term relationship, I think um, Barry Quinn oh, nice. at Westminster College mentored me in a sort of stern way. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I really feel as though he was not ordering me around, but he was showing me a better way. Here's some things, here's some ways that you could get what you want to do, which is ski all the time, and still get good grades in biology. <laughs> and I said, that, I need a middle path, I need that. that. That will work. And he knew. He said, if you just, you got to quit skiing during the week, it, that wasn't going to work. Um, so he was a mentor, and that was just for a semester, a couple of semesters. Um, everyone will say, if, they, if you had a good childhood, everyone will say your parent. I talked already about my father and mother, who were just these giving, loving, wonderful people, and I just sort of modeled myself after them. Um, the city manager of Park City, Arlene Lobel, who just passed away recently, hmm. coached me and mentored me as the new young city attorney. I said, I've never prosecuted anybody. Is that what city attorneys do? <laughs> <laughs> so, and she was terrific, and there were other people in the Park City community that were, that were great as I was learning the ropes. Um, what do you see as a common thread with all of these people? Is there one? They, yes. I think it's not entirely selflessness. I think mentoring is, okay, we're working together. Let me coach you. Let me help you. And I know coaching and mentoring are different. But, um, so there's, there's a little bit of self-interest. But it's the opposite of the you know, cutthroat, claw your way to the top sort of working environment. All right, so we're getting to the end. I, as we close, I okay. want to go back to the theme of the podcast. Yes. Which is the whole, <coughs> we spend, and I have to tell you this, you know, we, I, I call it 92,000 hours because 
that's the amount of time an average person spends. But uh-huh. uh, besides sleeping, it's the next thing we do. The most in our lives is we work. work. And it's by far longer than the times we spend with our families or socializing or anything else. So um, I'm interested in what makes what you do worth that investment because our time is limited and it's the most important resource we have. So what do you... There are... First, my father sat me down after a summer of being a wilderness helper and I I wasn't sure I wanted to go to college. This is after my first disastrous year. So you don't need to go to college. He said, however, it's you're going to work for a long time. And you need to find something that you enjoy, that you think is fulfilling and worth doing, or you're going to be miserable. Thanks, Jim. You're the best. Thanks, Alice. My sincerest thanks to Jim for his vulnerability and thoughtfulness. If you want to learn more about Jim and his work, connect with him on LinkedIn. Next week, I will be joined by Sylvia Castro-Bennett. Sylvia is the executive director of the Suazo Business Center, a business resource for the Latino, Hispanic, and other underserved communities. She also serves on the Utah Governor's COVID-19 Economic Task Force and the Multicultural Task Force. She will be speaking about priorities and investing time in the things we most care about. Join us. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. Ninety-two thousand hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.